On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. I'm doing well, aside from the fact that uh, my brain is just hard at work trying to process everything that that's happened around the National Hockey League. It's been an absolutely wild day, so nothing, uh, nothing short of pure excitement. So at least we have stuff to talk about. We do. Well, we're going to focus on the on the Canucks Coyotes trade here because obviously you cover the Vancouver Canucks, but also I think. Uh, you know, the Seth Jones transaction was obviously very interesting in terms of the commitment the Blackhawks made uh, with the contract and everything. And and the, the risk of line in trade was, was crazy in terms of the return the Sabres were able to get for him. But I think just, you know, in terms of bang for your buck with moving parts and stuff to consider and layers to it, I think this trade was, was a fascinating one. And I guess this is a good starting point for us here because it's pretty clear that the Canucks are better on paper and figure to be on the ice heading into next season after this trade than they were before it, adding these two pieces in Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland and sub- essentially subtracting three players that uh, either wouldn't have been playing for them or shouldn't be playing for an NHL team at this point in their careers in, in Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, and, and Louis Erickson. So they're clearly going to be better now acknowledging that there was a bizarre, crazy 56-game season with a COVID outbreak for them in particular and having key players out of the lineup and, and all of that. Uh, they finished the year 24th in point percentage, the Canucks did, and 25th in goal differential. And so it's one thing to say, okay, they're going to be better next year after this. It's an entirely different thing to say, how much better? And is it enough to justify the clear long-term risk they took financially here, especially in terms of taking on the Oliver ekman Larson contract? So I guess that's a good starting point for us here in terms of differentiating between those two thoughts and kind of trying to reconcile the decision to do so and how much better it actually made their team. Yeah, well, I think due to a combination of factors that they're going to be significantly better than uh, they were last season and not just because of you know some of the factors you mentioned in terms of having healthy guys back but you know in terms of Vancouver's top end Pedersen Hughes are going to bounce back the power play is going to bounce back you add even someone like Jason Dickinson to kind of stabilize the third line and just the way the top nine is shaping up and you also look at how weak the Pacific Division is like at this point definitely I expect the Canucks to be a playoff team but to me this trade kind of mirrors the acceleration phase of the 2019 offseason where I look at the team and I say yeah, you're significantly better, but I'm not sure that you're still at the point where you can contend for a Stanley Cup. And so in light of that context, it feels like this is a tad premature in terms of how aggressive they have been. 
Um, and in terms of the parallels between this trade and the 2019 offseason, it's like you add a high-end top six forward, right? That was JT Miller then, Connor Garland now. Um, and a defenseman who helps you now but comes with a really risky contract. Then it was Myers, now it's OEL. And to me, when I look at the fact that you only had to tolerate one more year of pain when you looked at the Erickson, Beagle, and Roussel contracts, I would have much preferred that, you know, obviously the Canucks weren't going to punt on next season, but if, if they had taken a more calculated, disciplined approach, kind of found a middle ground between being conservative and aggressive, that they could have made short-term gains while also preserving their long long-term flexibility because I looked at that 2022-23 year, you know, last year of Horvat and Miller's contracts before they hit unrestricted free agency. You have all this cap space opening up and that to me would have been the perfect time to all right, let's be aggressive now. Let's use our cap space um, to find win now trades. Let's uh, and and even signings and you know, that would have been an opportunity, I think, the perfect timing to, okay, maybe we can now trade a future first-round pick. And at that point, I think they would have had enough flexibility to really field a genuine cup contender. But um, in make in taking that step, um, I think a little bit prematurely, again, the team's going to be way better, but mm. it's just a matter of in three, four years, are you, are you still, you know, the risk is, are you compressing your window? Because the way I kind of, you know, look at it is it's not just Pedersen and Hughes that have their contracts up this season. And of course, Garland's not going to be cheap to resign either, but next summer you have Besser. Um, the year after you have Horvat Miller and even Hoaglander comes off his ELC. So the point I'm trying to make is your core is going to become pretty expensive. And, you know, my question, if you, if you're the Canucks and you have this expensive core is how are you going to then build a championship caliber supporting cast with that limited cap space? And normally that's where prospects come into the equation, right? And, you know, the problem there is now the Canucks had no picks in the first first two rounds last year. They have one pick in the first four rounds projected this year. Next year's second and third round pick are already gone. So like trading all these picks is going to eventually catch up to you. And the point I'm trying to make is, again, as your core becomes more expensive, how are you going to build out a credible uh, supporting cast and have this great depth if you don't have young prospects that can play on your ELCs in three or four years? Yeah, no, that's clearly, uh, and I think the financial consideration here that's kind of, uh, you, you, you can't, uh, you need to consider it when, when talking about this trade and we're going to, I want to shop that for a little bit and actually talk about the, the two key pieces in Garland and Ekman Larson uh, kind of individually here and, and deep dive them a little bit and what they're going to bring to the table, because I think that's sort of a natural, uh, you know, launching pad for us here. And let's, let's start with Garland, because uh, I think, um, you know, he's a, been a personal favorite of mine for the past year and a half or so. I think watching him play, he, he's tremendously fun with the puck. He's so slippery and elusive and it translated to a really impressive, you know, penalty differential numbers, for example, where, this past season, he was able to draw the third most penalties behind only Connor McDavid and, and Brady Kachuk. And he had the sixth best penalty differential, which was tied right with Nikolai Ehlers and, and Johnny Goodrow. And, and that provides tremendous value to this Canucks team that figures it's that it's going to have a strong power play again and, and puts him in some pretty elite company. He was 36th, I believe, in five on five points per 60 this past year. And, and honestly, would have been even higher and maybe even cracked that top 25 to 30 or so bonafide scorers, if not for a slight shooting percentage dip and only five secondary assists to his name. So I think it was a, a no doubt about her in terms of targeting him as an asset that can slide into 
a top six wing role for you and pretty much play with whoever and produce. And I think he's going to be awesome for the Canucks. And he, he was a player that I had on my list of pretty much anyone that, that needed a wing help or was looking to improve their team should have been targeting him, especially after it became clear that he wasn't going to be on the coyotes moving forward for whatever reason. Um, you, you mentioned the top nine. And I, I do think if you kind of map it out, you go, all right, Patterson probably play with Besser and Miller. You've got Horvat playing with, let's say Garland and Hoglander. You've got Dickinson in kind of a more sort of defensive shutdown role playing with Perkolzin and Pearson. All of a sudden that is the makings of a very logically thought out and deep top nine. And you can do a lot of damage with that. Uh, it's ignoring the the defense, which we're going to get to in a bit here. And obviously is a big concern, but at least it, like that's a, that's a legitimately formidable group. And especially as you mentioned in that, in that week Pacific division, like you can see the, the logic and thought process there of going, all right, like Connor Garland is a, is a very key piece for us here that unlocks a lot for us. And, and so kind of identifying him and targeting him is something that, that I can definitely kind of sign off on. Yeah. And it's not just what Garland himself brings, but as you kind of mentioned, the trickle down effect um, of where, I mean, for starters, you insert a player like that. And, and I love Garland in, in, in the sense where, you know, we know he's undersized, but he's still got that nose for the net. And it, it's fascinating because when I think of kind of some of the inefficiencies for player evaluation, you know, Garland went, went to the fifth round. A lot of times it's players that are undersized and aren't exactly burners in a straight line. And that's where even a guy like Adam Fox um, as a defenseman became undervalued where, where I think some teams looked at a player like him or a player like Garland and said, these guys aren't big and, and they don't exactly skate. Uh, they're not explosive in a straight line. And so, you know, but clearly players like Garland have kind of found a way to um, map out success. And, and when you look at the impact that's going to have on the lineup, I mean, for starters, uh, Bo Horvat's finally going to have consistent top six wing help, whether it's, I mean, I really like the idea of having both Garland and, and Hoaglander on his wings. And I, I think um, when you bump Pearson down and you also have Dickinson as a defensively oriented center, you have Pot Colson where his attention to detail um, is excellent. Like I think that third line could start to take on some of the tougher matchups that Horvat Horvat. Uh, was responsible for. And, and I think that's huge for him because despite Horvat being good on faceoffs and despite him being a, an excellent offensive driver, I think he's kind of been miscast as a two-way presence where when you isolate his defensive results, um, I don't think that's his forte or his, or his strength. So if you kind of allow that third line to play in a more defensive checking role and you give him the help of a player like Connor Garland, and now he's got Hoaglander as well, um, I think this is going to be huge for building a second line that can be uh, a lot more dominant offensively because you hist if you look at the results of the Horvat line over the past couple of years, they were just thrown to the wolves. Um, he didn't really have a, a ton of consistent help on his wings. And um, as a result, that line in terms of controlling play and even, you know, five and five goals, what is, wasn't exactly um, lighting it up. So now with, kind of bringing in Garland and the trickle down effect of that. I think that is just such a boost and such a game changer for that second line and really kind of helping to complete uh, that top nine. No, certainly. And I think it, I wanted to get it out of the way here just because I did want to give Connor Garland his love. And obviously he was a key component of why the Canucks made this trade. I think generally anyone that's been paying attention agrees with that and sees the value of him. And it, it's a, it's a big addition for them. Um, 
the Ekman Larson thing is so fascinating to me because you can kind of lump him in obviously different set of circumstances, but with the two other big sort of defensemen uh, with a, with a, a name brand value and, and reputation and were former high picks in the league, despite the fact that that was a long time ago, that seemed to be held in much higher regard in league circles and by NHL teams based on the discourse today that we've seen on Twitter, based on the prices that were paid in these trades for the teams acquiring them and their willingness to acquire them. In I'm talking about Rasmus Salainen and Seth Jones, and you can add Oliver Ekman Larson into that group. And, and it was such a sort of uh, fascinating day on a hockey Twitter to see that um, just the valuations, I guess, between sort of how we publicly rate them in the public sphere and how these teams seem to value them were clearly very polar opposite and led to some of these fascinating trades that we saw today. Yeah, the divergence was honestly pretty shocking. And I mean, we heard obviously Jim Benning at um, his media availability, not just talk about Oliver Ekman Larson and believing that he's top pairing defenseman, but he even referred to Ekman Larson as, well, he's our number one defenseman now. And, and now we can use Quinn Hughes in different ways. And when I look at Ekman Larson's profile, it's fascinating because, you know, when these rumors of Ekman Larson to Vancouver percolated um, last year, and, you know, that's when I did uh, a deep dive initially. It was interesting because his numbers were starting to obviously depreciate before this past season. And it wasn't just the numbers, right? I remember reaching out to an NHL scout who had, had watched the Western Conference really closely. And he, too, was saying, like, Ekman Larson really isn't a bona fide top pair guy anymore. He's more of a second pair um, option in his eyes. And so it's interesting that this year Arizona seemed to kind of recognize that they demoted him to the second pair. They played him less minutes, right? Ekman Larson before that was consistently logging 23 to 25 minutes a night. This year, he was a couple ticks below 21 minutes a night. Um, and this is the other key was he wasn't asked to take on the tough matchups assignment to play against the other team's top players anymore. And so he faced league average competition and all of that extra burden and responsibility uh, went to Jacob Chikrin, who obviously had a breakout year. And, you know, you'd expect that in that kind of, you know, environment where Ekman Larson ha is now expected to do less, that he might uh, bounce back. And, you know, obviously that was far from it, right? Um, he had a 41.2% uh, expected goal differential. Arizona was outscored by 14 goals when, it, when he was on the ice at five on five. Um, it just, you know, Ekman Larson's five on five performance hit a new low, in fact. And, you know, a lot of people will scoff at the numbers and just straight up attribute that to him being on a poor team. But I think Chikrin is proof of concept that it's not impossible for defensemen to succeed in Arizona, right? He was a two way force for them last season. He was above, uh, above 50% uh, in both expected and actual goal differential. It was plus four at five and five scored 18 goals and 41 points in 56 games and, and managed all of that while logging more minutes and tougher matchups than Ekman Larson. So it's like, if a player like that can find, you know, that level of success in Arizona playing the exact same role that Ekman Larson was as this bonafide number one defenseman, it kind of undermines the argument that the environment is solely to blame for Ekman Larson's underwhelming results. Now, having said all that, I do think a fresh start will genuinely benefit him. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he didn't get along well with the head coach, Rick Tockett, you know, there was all the organizational dysfunction and uh, also the context of he's playing for a team that very clearly didn't want him anymore. And all of those factors have to affect the guy's confidence. So, 
and, and in reaching out to uh, reaching out to people and, and a couple of talent evaluators, they they genuinely do believe that he'll bounce back in Vancouver. And I can definitely see foresee a scenario where he can be uh, a decent top four defensive for maybe another two, three years. It's just a matter of how long before the bottom kind of falls out. And um, and that's really, I think the crux of the issue here. Like this is fundamentally what's going to impact the outcome of this trade, right? Because Garland's a known commodity. We know how much of, of a boost he's going to give Vancouver. It's just about how long can Ekman Larson still be a top four defenseman. And um, that's where the Canucks are, are, are incurring a ton of risk. Yeah, they are. I'm, I'm kind of divided on it because I, I really don't see a plausible roadmap for him to, to deliver value on the $7.26 million cap that he's going to have over the next six years. Um, I think he was catastrophically bad. Uh, I guess even maybe the, the past two years, especially this past year in Arizona, there were a bunch of factors to consider uh, many, which you already discussed there. I think for me, the, the concerning part is normally when you talk about, especially it seems like with defensemen where they're playing extremely heavy minutes on these bad teams, uh, whenever they get moved or, or they get a fresh start, I think people are very lenient in terms of just assuming that it was a uh, environment or surroundings based thing in terms of their metrics. And that all of a sudden in a, in a new role and a new team, they're going to be used better and, and you'll be able to get better results out of them. And, and I'm willing to acknowledge that that's possible. Like he's going to play with more talented players on this team. I up front, I just think though, that, you mentioned that he was fifth in terms of quality of competition this past year amongst Coyotes defensemen. So it's not like he was being asked to do this ridiculously hard role. And if he plays in a softer matchup opportunity, he's going to do better. And he's going to a team that isn't all necessarily, um, you know, the Tampa Bay lightning in terms of their system and their, and their structure and being able to put someone in and just let them kind of get the most out of their, their talent. Like you're talking about a Canucks team here that last season was 29th in high danger shot attempts conceded 31st in expected goals against 29th in shots against and 26th in, in goals against, they were worse than the coyotes defensively. They were one of the worst defensive teams in the league. And so it, that argument doesn't really hold much, much stock for me. I'm, I'm willing to believe that, you know, psychologically a fresh start will help just being reinvigorated by a change of scenery and a team that, that wants him there. And, and I, I'm totally willing to acknowledge all of that, but just in terms of that actual on ice structural stuff of it's going to be way different for him here, just in a, in a new role. I, I don't see that because he already kind of had a lot of that stuff going for him in Arizona and he wasn't able to get good results out of it. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, people point to the environment and just the overall, um, you know, how weak Arizona is. But the fact of the matter is the Coyotes have like as a team, their performance has more or less been constant throughout Ekman Larson's entire career. Like they've been um, mostly out of the playoffs for his entire prime. And, and, and so really the, the quality around Ekman Larson hasn't changed. It's just been the, in, his individual performance. And I think especially coming to Vancouver, as Jim Benning alluded to, he's going to like, it's not as if he's now going to nestle into a second pairing role and he's going to be sheltered and he's going to have a great partner to play with. And they're going to lean on him as a number one defenseman and they're going to give him tough assignments. And the thing about Vancouver's system is when you kind of watch them play, 
they do expect a lot of, out of their defensemen because they play this heavy forechecking style where you commit three four check three uh, forwards below the hash marks aggressively pursuing um, the puck. And then what tends to happen is, you know, that helps Vancouver create a ton of offense. And it's part of the reason why in 2019, 20, they were the NHL's most improved offensive team, but that can create issues where if a team is skilled and fast enough to beat them on the breakout, there ends up being big gaps between the forwards and defensemen. And when that happens, you don't have the back pressure from the forwards. And then all of a sudden the defensemen can't gap up. And so it, it makes it really difficult for them to defend the rush. And um, even on breakouts, you know, Vancouver is a team that flees the zone really early that wants to just play dump and chase and, and play really quickly North South. So as a defenseman, that means less puck support and less options um, when you're trying to lead the breakout. And so all of these elements, I think, transitionally both way puts a lot of burden um, on defensemen. And so, I mean, even when you look at a player like Nate Schmidt, right, he had a tough transition um, in year one. And uh, even when you look at a player like Tyler Myers and how his zone exit results um, compared to earlier in, in his career have depreciated. I mean, I look at Chris Tanev going from Vancouver and Calgary, and, and maybe that was just an anomaly uh, of, I mean, I don't want to call it a fluke, but maybe uh, it was it was an anomaly, but he had uh, a renaissance season in Calgary moving to a new mm -hmm. team. So it is going to be, I think, an interesting adjustment period for Ekman Larson, where again, I think the psychological factors, you know, all the elements of a fresh start are definitely going to help him. He's going to have more talented teammates and, you know, just getting out of that toxic environment in Arizona is going to do wonders for him. Um, but yeah, I think from a pure honest perspective, it's not going to be necessarily a seamless, extremely easy adjustment where he's going to fit like a glove and it's going to, you know, all of a sudden he's going to be the prime Ekman Larson that we saw in the mid 2010s. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme? Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. 
Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Well, it's so fascinating you bring up that transitional and sort of uh, the way you're asked to play in the system component of it, because I was, I was looking at some of the underlying numbers, not just the actual results on, but in terms of his micro stats. And it was pretty alarming to see how um, his, his ability to break the puck out successfully with control, both in terms of the rate he did it at on a permanent basis, but also the efficiency in terms of as a percentage basically since 2017 it's been kind of this precipitous decline where each year from 2017 to 2021 he got like markedly worse at both and to the point where like he was uh, shockingly bad this past season at end i'm sure it led directly to the to the bad 515 metrics that he had on the ice as well but that, that, that's always alarming to me to see especially for a player who just turned 30 now that that's uh, some sort of an ancient age, but when you see a downward trajectory, especially in terms of like a very easily identifiable skill set like that, uh, for a player that relies on on his skill obviously to move the puck and has been heralded as as a premier puck moving defenseman, that's alarming to me. And that's something where when you think about okay, what are the next six years going to look like or whatever, uh, it's not very encouraging to believe that that's going to be something that's all of a sudden going to be rejuvenated bar, barring some sort of either either them asking him to do different stuff than he's been doing so far. Or, or if it was a, like a health thing in question, but just in terms of like the actual skills, you typically don't see players at this stage of their careers all of a sudden bounce back into in terms of skills like that. Absolutely, and that's a skill set in terms of uh, of puck moving ability that the Canucks need more of, right? That they're going to be counting on Ekman Larson for, I think, especially. Um, we've heard, I think Jim Benning mentioned that he wants to add more size and strength on the back end, so that would lend one to believe that. They're not exactly going to, in terms of as they construct the rest of their back end, they're probably not going to be bringing in any, any other puck movers. And so they're definitely going to be relying on Ekman Larson as the primary puck transporter um, on a pair, unless they keep Nate Schmidt, which I think is another fascinating you know, point is what exactly are they going to do um, with their other personnel, given that you now have three big contracts in Schmidt, Myers, and um, Ekman Larson. But Again, I'm I'm going to be curious to see exactly what kind of role and position they put him in. Who's his partner going to be? Um, is he going to, at this stage in his career, still be up to play against the Connor McDavid's of the world? Because again, in my opinion, as as you kind of see these um, defensemen that are maybe declining, sometimes it is kind of a more prescribed role that allows them to. Um, maybe retain their form for a little bit longer. Whereas coming to Vancouver, I, you know, you'd hope that there would be insulation around him and that he wouldn't be asked to do everything, but it sounds as if that's the expectation. And um, so it, it again comes to the diverging kind of perception and, um, and kind of valuation of the player where I think quite clearly the, the Canucks kind of perceive him to still be this, 
bona fide top pairing defenseman who can chew tough minutes, do it all, be the primary puck transporter. And, you know, the results show that that's probably not what he's capable of, capable of doing at this stage in his career. Um, no doubt still that he's, I think, I, I still think that he's going to help the blue line for the next two, three years. Again, not relative to his contract, not right. at, anywhere near the level of where he was at, at, at the prime of his career. But I still think like relative to say a Nate Schmidt or, you know, or a Tyler Myers and, and, and obviously the caveat that, the, that those are pretty low bars. I think he's still an upgrade for the top four. And, you know, especially having lost Alex Sedler, he is going to be a useful piece for them next year. And, and for a couple of years, probably two, three years. It, uh, but again, all those factors that you mentioned, the depreciating microstats, the on-ice results that have kind of fallen off. And again, just when you watch him play, I think when you talk to people and, and you kind of break down some of the tape, you know, Ekman Larson's a pretty good one-on-one defender with a stick, but I think we saw a lot of mental lapses defensively in terms of some of his decision-making and even when he was pinching and getting caught positionally. And so it's just a lot of those elements, you know, you wonder how that's going to age. And, and again, I think this is one of those traits that really compresses Vancouver's kind of window where you're really emphasizing that now's the time to win because you've got that Ekman Larson clock ticking for, okay, how long is he still going to be a top four defenseman for you? And, and, and you hit the nail on the head there. I think that fans sometimes and, and obviously not just Canucks fans, I think incur this with, with uh, fans of every team. Like it's tough separating yourself from the question of did the team get better here? And, and the question of was this the best route to go in terms of the opportunity cost of, and, you know, in terms of what they could have done with either this cap space or these assets. And that's such a big key when considering this trade here, because they really did enter this kind of crossroads period where if they had chose to be more patient and wait it out a year and wait for the three contracts that they just shed to come off the books, it would have opened up quite a bit of cap space for them and provided them with different opportunities to potentially kind of look around the league and add players in creative ways and, 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 and line things up uh, more efficiently, I think. So they're going to be better here, but in terms of, um, limiting their ability to grow as a group in terms of adding talent down the road, in terms of lining up the timeline where it makes sense for all the players involved and, and in terms of, you know, their own career arcs and trajectories, that's where this trade falls short for me a little bit. It feels like they inherited um, just needless amounts of risk in terms of limiting and capping their future upside organizationally with this trade and, and the reward is I guess making the playoffs in a weak Pacific division, but not necessarily actually being a credible cup contender. And for me, uh, that lack of ambition and kind of building your team that way is something that, that I do take issue with. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, a lot of people, again, it, it's, they, they just look at, okay, wow, this team is a lot better next year and we're going to make the playoffs and maybe we can win a round or two. But again, to me, and, and maybe this is kind of different from other people's perspective, but I'm always thinking about things in terms of what moves can you make to win a Stanley Cup? And again, it's one of those things where, especially because of the state of the back end, I mean, you can look at the top nine group and you can say, wow, that's really formidable. And you've got great goaltending. But defensively, this team is, I, I think, still way too suspect and too permissive to contend for contend for a cup 
um, especially next year. And, you know, the risk you run into is when you look at teams like Tampa that uh, obviously won back-to-back and you look at um, St. Louis and Washington before them, these teams year in and year out were consistently among the elite teams in the NHL. And it took them so many cracks and such a long runway of like six, seven, eight years for them to finally break through. And so even if you are able to, you know, let's say next year, this team is a playoff one. And then um, in the next off season, they do a bunch of work. And then let's say they do reconstruct the back end and they're a cup contender for 2022, 23 there's still the question of have you left yourself enough runway to take enough cracks to actually win? Um, because we've seen again with the examples that I noted that it um, it's not always a case of, well, when and Canucks fans should know this with the 2011 team, you can be this dominant juggernaut and just things happen in the playoffs, injuries, you know, bad timing, bad goal, you run into a hot goalie, whatever. And so it's just, this is one of those deals again, that I think compresses the window and, you know, when you look at, I think specifically, it's not just the the, the cap ramifications. Um, again, what I talked about kind of at the, at the top of it, it's about even, you know, people say, wow, the Canucks have graduated the, all these prospects. And so they have their young core. Like, what do they need more picks and prospects for? The problem, again, is like three or four years down the road, you any team that's contending they need elc contributors and you know tampa this year was the exception because they had kucherov and they did all these you know ltir shenanigans but even the year before when they won it legit and they didn't invoke ltir with a with a player like kucherov they had sergachev chernak and sorelli on elcs right so that's two top 4d and sorelli is your 2c um and it's just once pod colson and rathbone graduate this year who's your top prospect and again all these lack of draft picks um, in three or four years down the road, you may just run into a situation where you look at the core group of players and you say, wow, we've got this exciting nucleus, but we don't have a ton of cap space. We have a couple of players um, that are on inefficient contracts. Now, when you look at a player like OEL and, and Tyler Myers, and it becomes a question of, we need to flesh out the supporting cast, but we don't have a lot of money. And because we mortgaged our picks and prospects, we don't have that next wave, that the next rung of prospects coming to play crucial roles uh, in, in, in supporting uh, capacities on their ELCs. And, and so that's ultimately one of those things where that is one of those challenges that would ultimately put you either in that purgatory of being stuck in that, in that you're a good playoff team, but you can't take that next step as an elite contender Either that or it's going to, at a, at a certain point, um, your window is going to close close sooner. So um, that's, again, where you have to weigh the short-term gain against uh, the long-term opportunity cost. Well, they've, they've been involved in a big, elaborate game of kicking the can down the road for, for years now, right? And, and we've been talking about this isn't a hindsight thing. It's just a matter of... Um, you know, not necessarily having a ton of foresight or planning ahead and instead sort of being reactionary. So when they signed a bunch of these bad deals like Roussel and Beagle and Erickson and Sutter and so on and so forth, when it became clear those were going to be bad, I think the common refrain was, oh, well, I'm not too worried about it because they're going to come off the books here at some point. And then now, um, instead of waiting that out and uh, letting that happen, there's an air of desperation because whether it is Jim Benning feeling like he doesn't have 
the rope or the, or, or the leash to do so, because if he has another disastrous season, he's going to be out of a job or whether it's because of the ownership group feeling like they just don't have an appetite to have another miserable season, like the one they just had. And like they've had many of in the past, except for basically one, um, there, there, there just wasn't an appetite for this organization to do so. So instead they're going, okay, well, we're just going to and kind of take on this other pretty onerous contract. And yeah, it's going to be a problem probably in a couple of years, but that's kind of a future problem for us as opposed to a present day one. And so that type of thinking, I think really gets you in trouble, especially as you look ahead to this flat cap environment where there won't be the benefit of even maybe over the next two or three years, the escalation. So you're going to kind of be stuck with this. And just when you look at the fact that they already have so much money tied up before they've even paid their two best players at this point, it becomes a pretty alarming numbers game in, try, in terms of trying to make all the numbers fit and every all the pieces fit together when you consider how far away this group was as recently as this past season. Yeah, and I think it really comes down to, you know, you mentioned the kicking the can down the road. It's been happening since day one, really, since 2014 when um, uh, Jim Benning first took over. And, and to be clear, and, and I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this a lot before, um, this vision issue of them kind of cutting corners and, you know, not properly rebuilding, rebuilding from day one and, st- and stocking up those assets, assets at the time. Um, you know, a lot of that does, I think, fall under ownership as well and kind of the impatience that they've had. Um, but that's, you know, the issue where they, you know, I think a couple of years ago in 2019, they ran into kind of a catch 22 where you looked at the roster and you looked at kind of the prospect pipeline and you said, okay, they've got some exciting young pieces. You've got Pedersen coming, you've got um, Hughes Hughes coming. The issue though was, you know, it was one of those cases where you still got to be a little bit uh, patient, kind of wait things out. And that's where you had kind of the whole Trevor Linden debate too, where, you know, it was rumored at the time that he wanted a slower, more methodical approach. Uh, But because the team had kind of, you know, despite its efforts to remain competitive, they still did the losing of rebuilding team. And so I think even amongst the the fan base and even amongst kind of, you know, the existing players, when you look at a, when you look at someone like Bo Horvat and the fact that he's been there since day one, you like, you're, you're stuck in a spot where it's tough to kind of say, well, we want to continue to ride things out and be patient. And I mean, even, you know, this off season with how, how often, um, you know, with how much the Canucks have lost over the past six or seven seasons, you know, optically it is even tough to say, well, let's ride it out for one more year, even if that is the more most pragmatic and, and the best possible route to building a cup contender, it's still tough to kind of with the way things shaped up, um, the kind of miserable season there was, you look at these core group of players, it would have been still tough. And, and that's where, again, you ran into that dilemma. And, and, you know, personally, I still think there would have been a reasonable middle ground where you could have taken that road between being conservative and being aggressive. And you could have still made incremental calculated upgrades for next season, whilst still maintaining the long-term flexibility in terms of your um, draft pick capital and your, and your cap, cap flexibility. But you know, clearly the team felt that, you know, and, and I think a lot of it, it was fueled by, um, you know, clearly Jim Benning needs to make the playoffs, I think. Otherwise, he's going to be under a lot of heat. So this is a kind of win now move where um, you've got a GM with polluted incentives, right? Where, you know, his biggest thing is I don't, you know, any GM in, in his shoes, and I'm not trying to blame Benning specifically, but he's not worried about what Ekman Larson's contract looks like in three, four years. He's just thinking, how do I get this 
get this to become a playoff team and then we can figure things out later. And, and if it doesn't work out, well, I'm not going to be there to um, worry about that issue anyway. That's that's the next GM's problem. So, I you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of different factors and layers to this. And ultimately, it just comes back to from day one, um, the lack of clear vision and the lack of commitment to building a rebuild um, and doing it kind of the more methodical, proper way. And, and that's why you kind of end up in this middle ground of, you know, you don't have a ton of rope left and, and you can't really afford to be patient for too much longer because you've done all the losing of rebuilding team, but you haven't, um, you, you haven't built things up to the point where you are a couple pieces away from being a contender. Well, especially if you're, it seems like they're at least considering or the talk is that at least one of, if not both Hughes and Pedersen are probably going to take a bridge at this point and, and try to make it all work that way. Like, it, that's conceivably going to be one of their cheaper years then before they sign whatever the mega contract is going to be down the road. And so wasting another year of that after what's happened the past couple of years is, is especially um, unpalatable. So I, I completely agree with you there. And it's certainly not just a Jim Benning problem or a Canucks problem. Like you see it all around the league. We're having conversations now, whether Ken Holland's going to give Zach Hyman seven or eight years. And it's like, who in their right mind thinks that this is a good idea, but if it helps them next year, I'm sure he's going to take that and, and worry about it uh, afterwards. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a real thing, but I, I felt like we needed to mention it. Do you want to talk quickly about the, um, the coyote side of this? Because I, I do think that's kind of a fascinating element as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, from Arizona's perspective, they shed that massive liability, massive liability with the OAL contract and, you know, even with um, a player like Connor Garland, I, you know, I don't think they valued him properly. He's one of the kind of the last, um, you know, holdovers from the John Chica era. And clearly with new management in place, like we heard Connor Garland um, talking to Craig Morgan and saying he had barely heard from Arizona. So clearly they weren't willing to pay him as an RFA and, and they felt he was an expendable piece. So I like kind of the future assets they they've compiled. And I, you know, I, I do like what they've done in terms of, you know, taking on some of the other bad contracts and compiling draft picks um, almost in kind of the way the Seattle Kraken should have been stockpiling assets, but right. um, you know, overall with Arizona, it's, it's, it, they're clearly in a mode of they're, they're trying to sell everything. Darcy Kemper is probably going to go and, and they're trying this rebuild thing again. Um, but I mean, before, it's it's just all all really fascinating to me under the backdrop of such a dysfunctional organization, and I think this is their kind of you know attempt at trying to hit the reset button. Um, they're going to have a new head coach, and and this just feels like you know moving on from your captain. They're trying to kind of reset the franchise and hopefully try and move in a better direction. Yeah, well, it certainly continues a string of offseason moves for them now with a with a very clear uh, agenda. Where I, I do give them credit for at least like it's they have a clear defined plan and every move is helping push it forward unapologetically. So in the past week, they've uh, traded, they traded Aiden Hill away. They traded OEL and Garland here and a bunch of future considerations and took back Gostas Bear. They took back Andrew Ladd. They took back the three Canucks in this trade and they got in return the ninth overall pick in this draft, which wound up being Dylan Gunther for them. They got, the 2021 second from Colorado, a 2022 second from San Jose, a 2022 second from the Islanders, a 2022 second from Vancouver, and a 2022 second from Philadelphia, not to mention 
two more sevens and a third in 2023 from the Islanders. And so that's really, when we talk about weaponizing cap, like that is taking it to the extreme there. And, and in their case, and this isn't a new thing in terms of the way they've operated, but most of those deals as well, the actual salary they'll be paying out those players is significantly below what the cap space is. And so they've essentially bought eight picks here for $17 million or so in, in real cash while also sending out, and I think this is a very important component of it, not only a $50 million commitment to OEL through the next six years of his deal, but 31.5 of which are spread over the next three years. And so if you think about the way they operate, that is quite a bit of money. And I'm sure the ownership group is probably pretty happy about the ability to do so, even if, uh, you know, it is a big loss having a part with essentially your best forward to facilitate this, but at the same time, considering where they're headed, I think, uh, you know, from their end of it, it was, it was a pretty savvy trade. Yeah. And the thing with Arizona too, is, you know, you grab all this draft capital and now because you've got all these excess second round picks, um, you know, maybe at next year's draft, that's an opportunity to kind of move, move up in the draft and get more first round cracks at it. And, you know, the fundamental issue I think with Arizona's, you know, attempt at rebuilding was, you know, they never really were able to draft star talent. And when you look at the way the Coyotes operate in terms of how budget conscious they are, they're never going to be able to acquire those kinds of, you know, high-end uh, franchise cornerstone pieces through trade or free agency, just because by that point, they're going to be expensive and demand a, a lot of money. And so from that perspective, you know, if you're not getting those kinds of core pieces from the, tr from the trade market or, or in free agency, then you've got to draft and develop them. And I think this is, you know, an opportunity to, to do so. Hopefully they've invested in their scouting department and they aren't kind of cutting corners there because that does tend to be when you look at a team like Buffalo and an area where they kind of cut corners where they probably shouldn't, but um, you know, Arizona's now, I think really got to leverage all this, um, draft picks and really make use of it because, you know, you love, you always love the idea of restocking assets as a rebuilding team, but you've got to actually be able to turn it into something. And I remember, you know, thinking back to even Buffalo in, um, in the Murray years and, you know, they'd acquire all these picks, but their first round drafting was so bad that they never really turned that into core pieces. So that's really going to be the next key for Arizona as they kind of, Look to hit the reset button. Yeah, well, I was thinking of it just from like a emotional perspective, whether it's being a player there or an employee or a part of the coaching staff. Like on the one hand, I think it's certainly hardly ideal that they have been and continue to be uh, essentially the league's disposal site for bad contracts. Like it's it's bad optics. It's also just must be kind of like a soul crushing work environment where you've just basically you're kind of like we're operating as a shell company where you've got these big price tags, but you're not actually paying them out and they're not really contributing to their team. And sometimes they're an LTIR. And so they probably aren't even around and it's kind of a mess. But at the same time, with that being said, I think the alternative of being just perennially the 22nd to 25th best team in the league year on end with no real chance to move up in any discernible way is also a pretty depressing fate. And so at least in this case, if you're going to be bad, you're going to be really, really bad, but you have this sort of opportunity to sell at least kind of a glimmer of hope in the sense that you're going to have a bunch of cheap cost-controlled assets moving forward that are all going to be on the same timeline. And so this is the easy part of the job. Anyone can do this in terms of tearing it down building it up is significantly harder, but in terms of 
comparing this to the alternative of just being sort of stuck in the middle, I do think I, I still prefer this acknowledging that it has its limitations. And obviously if you go too far, it can kind of reach a point of no return as the Tim Murray Buffalo Sabres did. Absolutely. And I think, especially when you look at the next couple of draft years, they're, they're the best years to, to, to tank as opposed to obviously the 2021 draft, there wasn't a clear elite superstar kind of talent. So that's going to be an opportunity. Hopefully they get, uh, they get some lottery luck there. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, it was kind of depressing. I mean, I remember, you know, them going out and acquiring Taylor hall and, you know, kind of trying their hand at trying to spend money and, um, and really push their chips all in. And then I remember, you know, the bubble, just them getting dispatched by Colorado and it not even being close. And, you know, I just thought to myself, what a depressing life that must be as, um, as a Coyotes fan where you barely sniff the playoffs. And when you do finally get in, um, it's only to get wrecked in the first round. And, you know, at least now they're committed to a real direction and by tanking, they'll hopefully have a shot at landing, um, some star talent here. And so that's, that's at least gotta be some sign for, for hope if you're the Coyotes. Yes, I agree with that. All right, Harmon. Well, uh, let's get out of here. I think, uh, I think we did this trade. It's our due diligence. I think we covered it from every angle, uh, plug some stuff. What are you working on these days? Where can people check it out? Give us all the goods. Yeah. Uh, you guys can uh, check me out at, uh, at Twitter at, uh, Harman dial two H A R M A N D A Y A L two. Um, obviously my work is, uh, is at the athletic and recently just, uh, plugging away tonight on a OEL deep dive, seeing how much he has left in the tank and going to try and break down video numbers, all that stuff. So, um, that'll be, I think really fascinating for Canucks fans to, to see exactly where his game is at, because that's, I think ultimately going to be the uh, key to whether this trade works out for them or not. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to checking that out. I appreciate you taking the time to come chat. We're going to certainly have you back on sometime down the road. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy uh, the off season, the, uh, the silly season of, of free agency. It's to come and hopefully some other trades here down the road and we'll check it back in with you uh, sometime shortly. Thanks for having me. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.